Lectures from the Sacred Field, First Unit, on the tension between idea and ideology, our concept of time, the end of time, and, if not the Holy Spirit, what else could save the world? The lecture is held by Tommaso Carnetto in a series of lectures that are all related to the attempt of designing the 21st century and the question of how to become an author in the triad of ethics, aesthetics, and sociopolitical action in order to perform this attempt. Lectures from the Sacred Field I gave my students this assignment, to fill in the blank between if not and what else, what they would choose from a long list of ideas or ideologies to save the world. The assignment was part of my Coincidental Aesthetics lecture. Since it was to be filled out anonymously, no grades were given. The first thing I noticed was that 40% did not answer at all, for whatever reason. We can say that they did not have a position, or were not willing or able to communicate it. This dubious majority is followed by the first 10 rankings. In first place, if not a stable democracy, what else could save the world? Second, love of neighbor. Third, multi-ethnic society. Fourth, faith in God. Fifth, solidarity with refugees and the poor. Sixth, sustainable environmental technology. Seventh, Jesus Christ as an example. Eighth, a strong leader. Ninth, artificial intelligence. And tenth, if not becoming active in Fridays for the future, what else could save the world? All in all, the list contains 24 positions in terms of ideas or ideologies. Before we go any further, it is important to mention that the students are being trained in the field of the arts, especially communication design, fashion design, interior design, photography, filmmaking, in short, people who are beginning to unfold their individual authorship, although the idea of the author is irrevocably dead. How this apparent contradiction, being an author of non-authorship, is a precondition for entering the sacred field, I will talk about in one of the upcoming lectures. If we relate the artistic subjects of the studies to the 24 positions that the students had to choose, it becomes clear that the choice wasn't less based on a sophisticated consideration, but much more on a spontaneous assumption or feeling. It should also be noted that the perspective of the lecturer, that is, my perspective on the issues to be considered within the framework of the sacred field, is conditioned by my artistic work, more specifically, my poetic writings and visual arts. Therefore, it is not my intention, nor is it possible for me, to claim a strict philosophical position. The philosophical positions considered within the coordinates of the sacred, not at least to define what the sacred basically is, are always to be understood as drawn relations between poetry and philosophy. I have traced these relationships, and I continue to do so prompted by my question as to why I feel compelled to work the way I do. I couldn't do it in a so-called free way. Rather, I knew that I had to surrender to the way I do it. This surrender is an active act that forces my understanding of why I work this way, which in turn has led me to philosophers such as Martin Heidegger, Giorgio Agamben, Alenka Zupanzik, Maladen Dohler, and so on. Now we go on to point out the difference between ideology and idea. This requires arguments. If you follow my arguments, you can say that they aren't valid enough from the perspective of a consistent philosophical argument. With regard to what I said earlier, 
I could counter that what I'm saying is directly related to poetics. It is obvious that poetry does not need valid reasoning. As soon as reasoning enters the stage, poetry is out of the game. Although this is undoubtedly true, this argument is actually wrong because of the simple fact that this format, a lecture, may be related to poetry, but it is not poetry as such. On the other hand, what I am saying is not philosophical either. The lecture here is about the tension between the physical and intellectual act of poetic expression and the question of how to do it. This requires a special kind of valid argumentation. Valid argumentation in philosophy is based on very differentiated investigations. Of the logical argumentation itself, and thus on a consideration of the terms used, their development, and how the logical structure is changed by changing the respective meanings given to them. In my lectures, I derive my arguments not primarily from the terminological consistency of philosophical discourse, but rather from the poetic potency of aesthetic affect in its universal arbitrariness or indifference in a Gambon sense. The terminological consistency of philosophy is concerned with the what is to be said in relation to the why should it be said this way. My argument, on the other hand, is based on the practical answer to the question of how, how poetic potency might become true. Thus, the concrete act of becoming is the reference, one might say the valid proof or justification, for the arguments I put forward. The terminological consistency aims at a generally binding validity. The realization of poetic potency counts only from one individual to another. My reference to philosophy is to be found in the intersection between what is needed in terms of a generally binding validity in order to let the poetic potency become true and the subjectivized adoption of this truth from one individual to another. Back to the question of how to differentiate between an idea and an ideology and why it is important to do so, especially under the impression of global uprising ideologies of all imaginable hues. An ideology is characterized by a predetermined definition of what to do and why, and the question of how to do it is derived from the what. The what, in the case of ideologies, is to be seen as a reward for the obedient fulfillment of duty. Thus, the how is a set of rules or obligations that must be followed in order to receive the reward. Failure to follow the rules threatens punishment. In contrast, an idea lacks a precise definition of what it is, and thus has only indifferent answers to the question of what exactly to do. The why does nothing more than refer back to the idea. Thus, compared to an ideology, the idea is always weak. There are no precise rules, no promise of reward, and no threat of punishment. It is quite difficult to become active without specific instructions from a corresponding authority. Certainly, there is no sharp distinction between ideas and ideologies. Any idea can easily become an ideology once the rules of how to behave in order to remain in the community of believers become some kind of legislative force. To return to the student's choices, with the exception of a strong leader which imposes a precise set of rules to be followed, all the choices tend to be ideas at the same time open in thinking and non-committal in action. Undoubtedly valuable ideas in the understanding of the current majority. 
If we take a closer look at the chosen preferences, starting with a stable democracy, then love of the neighbor, a multi-ethnic society, solidarity with refugees and the poor, the empowerment of minorities, up to interreligious dialogue and the strengthening of women's rights, we see that these preferences have something in common, which we can call the idea of human cohesion, or simply togetherness, without any kind of predetermined selection criteria. For the next set of preferences, faith in God, Jesus Christ as an example, Muhammad as a role model, become active in one of the parties, and become active in Fridays for future, of which only the first, faith in God, and the last, become active in Fridays for future, were chosen by a few, it is not so easy to decide whether it is an idea or an ideology. Although you can follow Jesus or Muhammad in your own way and do the same with your faith in God, usually the following is related to generally valid rules. The same is true for political followers, whether in the parties or in the extra-parliamentary opposition. And in some ways, it is the same with faith in technology. Those who expect sustainable environmental technology or artificial intelligence to save the world must fulfill a special kind of obedient following. For the last list, it is obvious that we encounter ideologies here. On the political side, a strong leader, cohesion of the nation, a current form of communism, a current form of nationalism, becoming active in the identitarian movement, becoming active in the last generation, and on the religious side, the rules of Judaism, the rules of Christianity, the rules of Islam. Certainly, especially in religion, there is a big difference between the orthodox view and the liberal one, but nevertheless, in both views, the commandments of faith are to be seen as a reference, although more or less strictly interpreted. In our distinction between idea and ideology, in the case of an ideology, it is not important whether the rules have been strictly followed or not, but that there is a set of binding rules at all. On the other hand, the idea remains unbounded with the obvious problem. Without instructions for action, no action takes place. And finally, there is a strange exception that is neither an idea nor an ideology, but is easily mistaken for one or the other because both idea and ideology, constantly strive to improve the unregulated as well as the strict rules, citing the Holy Spirit as evidence. None of the students had chosen this hybrid and elusive particularity that we call the Holy Spirit. One might say that the Holy Spirit is closer to an idea than to an ideology. At first glance, this seems to be the case. There are no strict rules to be identified no person to be followed, no God, no political movement to be associated with it. In general, nothing to be fixed, nothing to be understood, in a sense nothing at all, not even an idea. So it is quite understandable that the claim, if not the Holy Spirit, what else could save the world, is seen by most as religious confusion, or at least unholy nonsense. In a sense, it is too easy to take the position that we should try to avoid ideologies and embrace the idea, because the idea gives us freedom of thought and action. 
It is true that ideology claims to protect us from harm and suffering and promises us satisfaction and a fulfilled existence as long as we adhere to the given regularities. It is also true that the idea, at least the examples given here, frames what we might call human cohesion or togetherness. But the idea of cohesion or togetherness is also to be found in every ideology. Moreover, it is a fundamental part of it, and the attempt to avoid what might harm us and to try to achieve what will satisfy us is also for those who vote for the freedom that an idea might give a fundamental condition of their physical being. So it is not only a question of how to become active in the case of the idea and how to hold on to individual freedom in the case of an ideology, but much more. It is a question for me of how the attempt to avoid the danger and to achieve the well-being on the one hand and how to activate togetherness on the other hand are to be seen as mutual conditions. From my perspective, it seems almost impossible to separate the attempt to avoid the evil and achieve the good, which is inherent in all ideologies, from the idea of human cohesion or togetherness. Thus, any idea will involuntarily become an ideology as soon as we define binding rules on how to make cohesion come true. This happens insofar as the hiatus between individual bodily coherence and collective cohesion is covered by a suspension machine identical to the interlocking instructions for action that make up every ideology as a doctrine to be followed without fail. In this regard, I allow myself to quote Giorgio Agamben, to render inoperative the machine that governs our conception of the human being will therefore no longer mean looking for new and more effective or authentic articulations, but rather revealing the central emptiness, the gap that within the human being separates man from the animal. End of quote. Now we have to deal with the question of how to become active in terms of the idea of togetherness, since togetherness itself is obviously a mutual condition of any kind of ideology. Now the concept of animal comes into play. In the understanding of the civilizing dictum based on the ideological machine, we have to overcome the status of being an animal. The differentiation that we as humans define between ourselves and the animals has many layers. We remain at the level of the tension between individual coherence and collective cohesion, which, as we have seen, cannot be separated from the tension between idea and ideology. The animal, although quite capable and willing to act altruistically, is primarily concerned with avoiding danger, that is, being harmed, and with achieving the good for itself, that is, having enough to drink and eat, a warm place to live, being able to reproduce and playing in the sun, at the lake, in the meadows, and in the woods. The price for the cohesion of the evolutionary system is incomparably high. The animal is forced to sacrifice itself, which it will try to avoid at all costs. Culture, on the other hand, which is to be seen here from the level between individual cohesion and collective cohesion, has developed the idea that it is not only worthwhile to sacrifice oneself for the common good, that is, for one's family, tribe, race, and nation, but that it is the highest goal to do so, up to the price of one's own death, which we are told to pay willingly with the highest humility and joy. Once again, Agamben, in our culture, the decisive political conflict which governs every other conflict 
is that between the animality and the humanity of man. That is to say, in its origin, Western politics is also biopolitics. End of quote. According to the Christological concept of the Apostle Paul, as can be read in the Epistle to the Galatians 5, verses 13 to 16, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as the last sacrifice of the sacrificial system has finally erased from the law self-sacrifice in favor of any kind of belonging to an idea or ideology, even if it is a belonging to the divine. You, my brothers and sisters, have been called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but serve one another humbly in love, for the whole law is fulfilled in the observance of this one commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. End of quote. This is to be seen as a transgression of every idea and ideology in order to fulfill the identity of individual bodily coherence and collective cohesion. In Paul's understanding, flesh is a term that describes the separation of both one's own bodily being and one's being in togetherness. It is easy to misunderstand Paul's use of the term flesh as a fundamental hostility to the carnal body. And that's exactly what has happened for over 2,000 years. If you read carefully, it is not the body as such, especially in its sexual context, that he criticizes, but rather the body as an object of devotion to any ideology that promises a reward for good behavior in the fulfillment of physical pleasures. This is what Paul calls paganism. The whole Christological concept, as formulated by Paul, is about how the body can be freed from any kind of external control in order to become a figuration in which the spirit, the living pneuma, unfolds its loops of the eternal return of what is like one another. This body is no longer the sinful body of the old Adam, sinful because it was torn by the law of fulfilling ideological commandments that no one can do justice to, because of the gap between individual coherence or the integrity and cohesion of the idealized community. The new body is the word made flesh filled with the divine pneuma, as Paul puts it, with the Holy Spirit. This spirit or pneuma will remain active in the mutual incarnation of the word that becomes flesh and the flesh that becomes word. This is to be understood as a living encoding through which every kind of living being as well as every physical object becomes part of the Divina Commedia. What happens to the individual body as a persona related to the particular body when it takes its freedom to overcome the assigned mask by putting on the mask of the individual narrative? Before we can answer this question, we need to consider the question of what a narrative is. To keep it as simple as possible, we can say that the narrative decodes and recodes how to get rid of every idea and ideology in order to surrender to the pneuma. The surrender is an active act that takes place through the subjectivized enactment of the narrative. A narrative transgresses the idea and the ideology insofar as it contains the what and the why of the prevention of what is dangerous, as well as the attempt to achieve of what is good and also the longing for togetherness without being reduced to it. The true subject of a narrative is the how of its enactment. Since the true subject of a narrative is its how, how to decode or deconstruct the event, how to recode or reconstruct the elements of the event, 
and how to encode the respective movements that figurate the elements anew, or how to compose the formatives of the narrative score. What happens to the individual when he puts on the mask of the narrative, that is, when he performs it as an author, is to become the hiatus itself, the in-between of one and the other involved being. This active in-between is what we call love. Thus, in the sense of what the Apostle Paul has defined as the possibility, given by the freedom from all ideas and ideologies, of love thy neighbor as thyself, every narrative is a love story, and the subject of the narrative is a beloved as well as a lover. According to Agamben, by enacting the narrative, or let us stay with the label Divina Commedia, at least for those narratives that seek to encode the active surrender to the Holy Spirit, the author, as a subjectivization of the hiatus, understood as an unbridgeable space in between, transgresses not only the contradiction between the individual right to unavailability and the collective cohesion of human beings, but the human being as such, the messianic banquet of the righteous on the last day. Under the shades of paradisiacal trees and cheered by the music of two players, the righteous, with crowned heads, sit at erically laid table. What is surprising, however, is one detail. Beneath the crowns, the miniaturist has represented the righteous not with human faces, but with unmistakably animal heads. End of quote. At this point, we see that saving the world is not about choosing the suitable idea or ideology and defining the respective rules of what to do or fulfilling the already given rules, but about rejecting every idea and thus every ideology and thus renouncing the questions of what we are as human beings and why we are like this and here at all. The composer John Cage formulated it aptly. I have nothing to say and I am saying it, and this is poetry as I needed it. End of quote. This is an undeniable statement for the how, for staying with the how. How to become a writer, how to become a poet, how to become a lover, how to become a being with the ability to enter the sacred field. Now it becomes clear that there is only one answer to the question of how to save the world. If not the Holy Spirit, what else? We have been talking about saving the world as if it were pretty clear what that means. Saving the world, as most people understand it, means saving the resources of our planet and treating the environment in such a way that humanity will not only survive for thousands of years to come, but will be able to inhabit this world as a cultural place. But with Auschwitz and Hiroshima, something fundamental has already broken. Not only do we face the possibility of irreparably destroying the world physically and as a human place, but with the horrors of Auschwitz and Hiroshima, the structure of time broke apart. More precisely, the state of time that allows us to become active in the sense of devotion to the living movement burned out and went up in smoke. According to Agamben, the state of time I am talking about is called my time, operational time or messianic time. He defines operational time as the time the mind takes to realize a time image. In order to understand what it means that the structure of time has broken up, it is necessary to encounter time as a construction that allows us to develop the idea that we are repealed in time. From a physical point of view, time does not exist as a general quantity. 
Time is rather a phenomenon of thermodynamic decay. Quantum physics tells us that time does not have a general value, but is actually produced by each material figuration, that is, by each individual body itself. Time as a generally valid value is an illusion that produces the idea of past, present, and future. In fact, this is the way we perceive reality. Past is another term for the perceptions we have stored in our body as well as in our subconscious memories. This is the source of what we involuntarily try to avoid or try to achieve as a prediction of the future. To make the prediction of avoiding evil and achieving good come true, we need an idea which, as we've seen, becomes an ideology once we define the rules of how to do it. All in all, we can say, somewhat loosely, that we operate with two general concepts of time in our perception, the concept of infinite linear time, chronos, and the concept of infinite circulating time, ion. On a very concrete level, we see that these concepts allow us to distinguish between events that recur regularly, such as the seasons and those that occur once in a lifetime, such as graduating from high school, celebrating your 18th birthday, and so on. In relation to Kronos and Aeon on the one hand, and the past and future that belong to both concepts on the other, we now need to define what is meant by operational or messianic time, and where it can be found. In terms of learning from the past how to act in the future according to the ideology that promises salvation, past and future form the structural precondition of any idea or ideology. What Agamben calls messianic time adds a third category of time, which he calls operational time, which transcends past and future, as well as ideas and ideologies. Agamben relates the messianic time to the operational time in this way. In every representation we make of time, and in every discourse by means of which we define and represent time, another time is implied that is not entirely consumed by representation. It is as though man, insofar as he is a thinking and speaking being, produced an additional time with regard to chronological time a time that prevented him from perfectly coinciding with the time out of which he could make images and representations. This ulterior time, nevertheless, is not another time. It is not a supplementary time added on from outside of chronological time. Rather, it is something like a time within time, not ulterior but interior, which only measures my disconnection with regard to it. My being out of sync and in non-coincidence with regard to my representation of time, but precisely because of this allows for my achieving and taking hold of it. End of quote. Even after the unimaginable inhumanity assigned by the names of Auschwitz and Hiroshima, past and future, Kronos and Ion, exist unchanged as a conceptual basis for what we call cultural development on all levels, such as politics, technology, social issues, etc., but the abilities given to each individual by the operational time are in danger of disappearing completely. Due to the fact that we have been living in a state of emergency for 80 years now, but we have tried by all means to ignore the messianic time, and thus the possibilities of the operational time seem to be totally absurd to most people. Especially after the inhuman cruelties of the Second World War, the pragmatics of functionality must be in the foreground 
in order to prevent what happened in the horrifying past from happening again in the future. That was and is the idea. We wanted to prevent any ideology, but driven by the inner logic of the relationship between idea and ideology, this very thing, the idea of preventing any ideology, has inevitably led to the strengthening of ideologies of all kinds. Now that nationalism and neo-fascist ideologies are gaining more and more power all over the world, denying the environmental destruction, the climate change, the deadly warming of the whole globe, we can no longer ignore that something is falling apart. We can feel it, that something is fundamentally wrong, that more and more living elements of a free togetherness are missing. But how to name the problem so that we can actively deal with it? How to change it? Above all, the fearful question of whether it is even possible. What is left but to function as efficiently as possible? To optimize the bitter leftovers? And to hope that we will get through the whole thing more or less unscathed? To be honest, it doesn't look that way. From my humble position, there is only one thing we can do, whether it sounds absurd to you or not. Surrender to the living movement of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to surrender to the living movement? Is it a desperate leap back to the supposed security of religious promises? God will work it out, since there's nothing we can do about it anyway? Absolutely not. Surrender to the Holy Spirit is a radical as well as an active insistence in the operational time. In the above sense, the third category of time, given within chronological as well as circulatory time, can only become true through an unconditional subjectivation, that is, by understanding that this is my time and working accordingly. As Agamben puts it, whoever speaks of my time divides time, inscribes in it a turning point, a discontinuity, but precisely through this turning point, through this switching of the present into the sluggish homogeneity of linear time, contemporaneity creates a special relationship between times. In this respect, nothing is more exemplary than the gesture of Paul, who proclaims to his brothers the contemporaneity, the messianic time, in which one is a contemporary of the Messiah and whom he calls the time now. Within the operational time, as it emanates from each subject, the subject involuntarily becomes an author, insofar as the subject surrenders to the multidimensional, apparently paradoxical movements, that is, to the Holy Spirit. Thus, the operative time is the same one that we can call inherent time, own time or my time, not to be misunderstood as a kind of property that we possess, but the subject's becoming a proper value of this time structure. Inherent time is found only in the subject. Linear time and circulating time, on the other hand, are constructed as a generally valid time to which every living being and every object is equally subject. Authorship is simply to be understood as a reciprocal relationship between subject and operational time. Just as this time is a result of the subject's authorship, so time creates the subject. In terms of pure perception, operational time is the only one that can be perceived immediately. Therefore, this time structure belongs only to the individual. If what is now only a part of the linear and circular concept of time were to permeate all concepts of time to the point of total absorption, operational time would become the totality of messianic time. 
In other words, to step into the end of time in terms of past, present, and future. Time will then become a set of multidimensional narrative coordinates, that is, an encoding of subjectivized movements from one to any other arbitrary object. Every narrative, to the extent that it deserves to be called a narrative at all, is coded by what happens to the author while he is surrendering to the operative time, that is, if we use the medieval expression for its fluid expression, surrendering to the pneuma. Pneuma, taken from the ancient Greek sources, is to be understood as the concrete power of the Holy Spirit, a power characterized by the ability to connect every point in the universe with every other point. Each point in turn is the detection of movement by itself, which is only possible in the mode of subjectivation. This subjectivization of the self-recognizing movement is exactly what happens operatively in operative time. We have seen that the definition of what is good and what is evil comes from what we instinctively try to achieve and what we try to prevent, and that we choose one or another idea or ideology because we are convinced that if not this idea or ideology, then what else could save the world? That is, save us from being harmed and give us the security of being treated as well as possible. From this we have seen that the past provides the knowledge of what is good or evil, and that we must use this knowledge to achieve the good in the future and to prevent the evil. We understood that there is a common ground for what we defined as an idea, the common cohesion or togetherness of the family, the clan, the tribe, the people, the nation. We also understood that any idea becomes an ideology as soon as there are binding rules to be followed in order to achieve the good for the future. Thus, we discovered a fundamental contradiction between the individual good and the common good, that the individual may have to sacrifice himself in order to ensure that the promises of the ideology become real and remain stable in the future. We learned that the concepts of time we are dealing with, namely linear time, chronos, and circulating time, ion, are both bound to the concept of a common past and a common future for all humanity with linear time forming an endless line of single events and circulating time forming endless loops of recurring events, both are intertwined. We have seen that besides linear and circulating time, there is a third understanding of time, operational time, philosophically understood as the unfolding of messianic time. While linear and circulating time apply to all human beings, at least on planet Earth, Operational time belongs only to each individual subject. We see that there is a fundamental tension between the individual and his physical and spiritual needs and the idea of being part of a community. The tension becomes a contradiction when we realize that every ideology, by definition, tries to realize its own plan, claiming that this will be the salvation for all humanity. But in fact, in competition with other ideologies, tries to realize its particular interests, with all the physical and mental violence. Finally, we've discussed that only in the messianic time, that is, when the operative time becomes valid for all, can togetherness become true. In this understanding, the messianic time is based on the community of those who, as authors of the operational time by surrendering to it, create the multidimensional multitude of the narrative texture. The narrative texture, which is the texture of togetherness, is identical in the medieval understanding with the pneuma, 
taken from ancient Greek philosophy, or, in the monotheistic religions, with the Holy Spirit. What I call the sacred field, then, is the concrete place in space and time where the Holy Spirit becomes subjectivated through the author's surrender to the operative time. Back to our original question about what could save the world. Any ideology, in the sense of an idea of how to save the world that defines a strictly binding set of rules for doing so, definitely does not have the slightest chance of realizing its plan, no matter how good it may sound to you. As long as the plan is based on the concept of a common valid time structure, such as the concept of past, present, and future, as found in the idea of Kronos, as well as Aeon, it must inevitably fail. For one simple reason. The concept of past, present, and future has nothing to do with the actual time of the physical and sensual being of the individual. The individual being is not to be found in the concept of ideas or ideologies and their definition of what is to be done in terms of rules taken from the past and directed toward the future. The individual being in its concrete unfolding belongs only to the inherent time of the operational succeed. Due to the fact that the world is always a subjective truth, the only way to save the world is to save the subjectivification as it takes place in the operational time, in the sacred field. In contrast, the optimization of the particular functionality, as it is aimed at by the respective ideology, destroys all basic functionalities. The basic functionalities are to be understood as the physical as well as the mental preconditions, in other words, the physical functionality of the planetary exchange, to unfold the subjectivification of time, that is, the operational time, so that in order to save the world, especially on the functional level, we must first save the operational time, which can only be done by each individual the, to some extent grammatical, prerequisite for each individual is basic functionality that is being related to the complex structure of the interaction between man, nature, and technology, with our scientific understanding and the design of our world according to the given technical possibilities, the complexity has reached an unmanageable level. Moreover, as our understanding increases, the proportion of what can be called the unknown, the unavoidable, the unavailable and the unpredictable, as well as the apparently predictable, becomes larger and larger. Insisting on the total optimization of functionality as the solution to all problems, therefore, makes the whole situation even more precarious. Much more, it is essential to take into account the unknown as well as the unavailable, which is the sacred as such. Since the sacred field is the place where operational time unfolds its narrative of subjectification, the unknown, the unavoidable, the unavailable, or the unpredictable is an essential part of it. Every drawing, every poem, every written line, as long as it does not follow a specific functionality, is an encoded score of operational time, or my time, inherent time, own time, which can only be brought to life by surrendering to Numa that is, to the Holy Spirit. Thus, operational time can only be grasped and brought forth by encoding the coordinates of a narrative, by whatever means. 
Here we are at the heart of what can actually be done and why it is inevitably necessary to become an author who works in the field of the sacred, at least for those who are passionate about working in all the fields of poetry. It may be art, design, musical composition, choreography, and so on. If we summarize what I've said so far in this lecture, the main conclusion is as follows. By creating a narrative, the author encodes an aesthetic loop of ethical action. To do this, the author must enter the sacred field. As long as the author remains within the field, that is, in a state of active surrender to the Holy Spirit, the attribute of being holy is valid. I must repeat the central claim. By creating a narrative, the author encodes an aesthetic loop of ethical action. This is the task today of those who work in the broad field of the creative, aware that the triad of ethics, aesthetics, and socio-political action can only become true by entering the sacred field. As I said at the beginning, I am well aware that the statements, a lot of statements, I have made here are not based on an elaborated argumentation valid for strict philosophical reasoning. What I have said so far is already the result of my attempt to understand how I work when I write poems and literal texts, when I draw and paint, why I have to do it this way, what this way means, to which I undoubtedly have to surrender in order to fulfill what I am called to do. Here the question arises, called by whom? By myself? By an external force? To save the world or to lead a successful life or to tell students how to create something out of nothing? The aim of this first lecture is therefore to provide a framework within which all the statements summarized in the sentence By creating a narrative, the author encodes an aesthetic loop of ethical action can be validated by investigating how to work in the mode of operational time which can only be done in the sacred field. The method for this is to develop an argumentation through the deconstruction of my poems, texts, drawings in paintings, and their interrelation in terms of how it took place. This is a method of poetic argumentation rather than a philosophical one. As Martin Heidegger puts it in a note on Paul Cezanne, in the late work of the painter, the fold of that which becomes present and of presence itself, becomes simple, realized, healed, transfigured into an identity full of mystery. Does a path open up here that leads to the co-belonging of poetry and thought? End of quote. It is not an act of inappropriate vanity that I use my own work to explore how the co-belonging of poetry and thought can work. If we take the demands of the operational time seriously, we can only rely on what we have produced ourselves. No other arguments can count. We are responsible for the result of our individual subjectification, simply in the sense that we are forced to do it and to think about what we have actually done. One answer might be that only the co-belonging of poetry and thought can give us the argumentation towards ourselves, why we must follow a passion that sooner or later will tell us that surrendering to the Holy Spirit is the only way to save the operative time that is, to save the world. A peculiar time in a peculiar world that can only unfold in the in-between space created by the togetherness of self-responsible individuals. 
The aim of these lectures is to understand how to use the co-belonging of poetry and thought in the sense of a surrender to the operational time. It is also about how to enter the sacred field for which in turn the subjectivization of the operational is needed, something that we already learned in our very early childhood and that we now must reactivate, namely, the ability to draw ourselves into the world. Into the world means, in the concrete sense of the profession, how to use the knowledge and the methods of performance in the field of education, especially by teaching diseño at different levels, for children, for teenagers and adults, and for decision makers in politics and economy, as well as in cultural and religious communication. In general, the aim is for students to become active as communication designers in all areas of global society. In terms of what it means to become and be a designer for the 21st century, this lecture provides fundamental competencies. First of all, the competence to define conceptually what it's about and why it's important to communicate the issue in each individual case, an issue that in any case has to be related to the possibility of participation through an active surrender to the operative time and to the need for individual engagement through working on togetherness. Second, the competence to design intellectually, that is, to define the concrete process of participation and engagement. Third, to design the tools, both media and physical, needed for participation and engagement. And finally, fourth, the competence to provide information about how it works and to communicate, combining text and imagination in an aesthetically sustainable way, why one should participate and be engaged for others.